did pretty well in the Paralympics again. Yeah. Uh, and so can you like, tell us a little bit about what the Paralympics were like. Um, and I, so just to introduce again, so Jesse's been on here before. She was at my former university as a D1 athlete, uh, which I'm now at the University of New Hampshire, which I think you know. Um, and you are a, you do track and field and you've done the discus throw. I believe you're a world record holder in the discus throw. And you competed in 2016 and 2020. So uh, very impressive. Um, and I also believe you're the, like, think you're the only, you're the only D1 um, athlete in the United States that's on the Paralympics team, any Paralympics team. Is that correct? Uh, track, I was one of, Oh, so there's more. I don't remember the number anymore. Yeah, we had a huge um, increase in athletes competing collegiately on our team since 2016. Uh, Got it. Okay. So in 2016, that was the case. Okay. Very cool. Oh, you know what? I think I did see something like that. So yeah, that's awesome. I wonder if you're paving the way a little bit. <laughs> Trying to. <laughs> you know, unintentionally, right? You might be doing <laughs> So last time we talked, we talked about kind of the Paralympics. It was like mid-COVID. I mean, still is mid-COVID, but uh, more intense COVID and everything was still up in the air. And the 2020 trials were all kind of paused for a while and I think last time we talked everything was kind of um this still very much up in the air I believe one last things that you said about was that you all were having like kind of regular big meetings with the different international olympics committees and all that about what's going to happen and didn't really know where what you were going to do and, and all those things so with all that can you tell us a little bit about just even how you got prepared in such in a year of COVID um, where you're so off and you didn't even know really if it was still going to happen. Like talk, walk us through that process a little bit. Yeah, it was super hectic just <laughs> to wrap it all up. It was crazy. Um, last year, like you said, we were having meetings to sort of discuss, okay, from the athlete's perspective before it was postponed, what are we feeling? Are we feeling comfortable with it? you know, how should we approach this? And then once the United States said, yeah, we support it being postponed and then it was postponed. We all kind of had the spot where we're like, okay, we have a year. This should be a good thing, but also we have no idea how to move forward. So with me being a discus thrower, I knew, okay, I have a year to really hone in on like my technique and figure that out. I just need a place to train. And that was a huge obstacle that all of us faced, particularly with the um, Paralympic athletes. Cause you know, with able-bodied athletes, if you need to go run, you can typically go on like a street or a grassy field for most of us in the para world, we can't adapt that way. And so there were a lot more challenges that we faced just trying to get in that training. Thankfully I had an area where I could um, train and I could find concrete and my parents helped build like, um, a little discus training area in the garage. So that was a huge blessing for me, but, um, just finding that normalcy of we're trying to train regularly for the, like the biggest year of our life, but this is not normal. <laughs> it's the weird circumstances, the weird places we're in. And thankfully with the internet and zoom and everything, we were able to still communicate with our teammates because, I mean, you felt very isolating as everyone felt isolated in their own ways. You know, I've, there are times I felt, oh my gosh, I'm training for this 
you know, I feel so alone. I feel like no one understands what's so weird about my particular like niche of the world I was experiencing. But thankfully we could like get on Zoom and talk to each other and say, this is weird for me too. Like, how are you adapting to this? How are you getting weight training? You know, what are you doing to get training in, even though you can't like train in the same facilities because they're all shut down. So that was crazy, like all through that summer. And then uh, thankfully when school started back up for me, it was my senior year. Um, our track facilities were back open for us. And I mean, that was just a huge breath of fresh air to finally get back in a ring, you know, that wasn't shut down and be with my teammates. You know, of course it was like distance and we all had masks and it was a very different environment than what we were used to. But part of it just felt like normal again, because we're back with our teammates back in actual facilities. And mentally I could really re-prepare myself to actually be in real training because for the summer, part of me felt like I wasn't even training for something anymore. I just felt monotonous going in the garage and doing this. And I thought like, I'm not going to competitions like I usually did in the summer. So mentally it was very difficult to rework my brain into thinking I'm actually training for the biggest competition of my life next year, thinking it might not even happen in general. And thankfully it did, but yeah, there are times we thought, you know, we're training for nothing right now. but we're grateful it did end up happening, but it was hectic. <laughs> I can imagine that because yeah, it must've been a very like, kind of like peaks and valleys kind of feeling of going through that because like when they told you, yes, this is happening. I bet you had a little feeling of like, is it really going to happen? You know? like yeah. 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 We're all like, Oh, we've, felt this before and now we're like oh I don't want to you know invest too much and think this is going to happen for sure and then have it be pulled out from under me also in the same sense you don't want to you know undersell yourself and then you get to the big moment and realize that you weren't prepared so that was kind of felt like walking on eggshells mentally to figure out how do I actually you know prepare do I pretend like it's going to happen or pretend like it doesn't you know which one is more beneficial (laughs) oh I because I assume is like you know like an athlete in this world, like I bet like that when it originally closed down and it became like a real thing that it wasn't going to happen. I'm sure that was, must have been like one of the most, I don't know, devastating things an athlete can ever hear, right? Not even have the opportunity to compete in this thing that you just, you just take for granted that it's going to be there, right? And then, yeah, like that's got to like, kind of you don't, you're like, oh no, but it happened and you did excellent. And uh, so Walk us through a little bit about, um, you know, the 2020 landscape, what it looked like, how did it feel? Yeah, I was in Tokyo about a month. And I mean, the preparation that went into this was absolutely insane. I mean, as an athlete, I realized I had so minimal, um, like I, I had a lot less things to prepare for than some people that were more on the administrative side. I talked to someone about a month ago who was dealing with this and he's saying like six months out, we were, you know, preparing so much. So, um, for us, we really had to hone in like the summer before, you know, after trials, after we found out we made the team, we had to really make sure first of all, that we were healthy. Cause the biggest thing was Japan wasn't going to allow anyone in if they had a negative test. So even if you had COVID in June or July and you had those false negatives, just because you were sick at one point, they weren't going to let you in. So we couldn't have the safety of, oh, I'm fine because I had it and I'm good now. You know, they were going to say none, we don't want to risk anything. So 
I was on lockdown all the way going into that. And then getting over there, we had a training camp, which they usually offer for individual sports. Uh, for track, we usually have one in our own country, but this time we went to the Air Force Base in Japan and Yokota, and they hosted us so that way we could adapt to the weather and the altitude and the time zone, as well as stay only among our team to stay healthier. Uh, we had the option to opt in or out of that. So I chose to go two weeks earlier for that. And for me mentally, I just thought I want to do that because I don't want to risk that the last two weeks I'm home, you know, something happens and I can't go. So I went there and we had two weeks of training and they were amazing um, hosts for us at the Air Force Base. We had uh, the high school track that we could train at. Uh, we had lifting facilities and we stayed in the um, apartments that they had. And that was nice for me just to, once I was over there to say, okay, I'm here, I'm healthy right now, you know, no matter what, I'm at least in Japan. And they had measures in place for us uh, for safety. So we had COVID testing every single day. I think we had like three days leading up to travel. And then every day after that we were there, we had COVID testing, which was, I mean, it was just a huge load off my shoulders knowing like if anything happened, if there was an outbreak somewhere, you know, you catch it right away. And I expected nothing less of Japan. They were amazing with preparing that. Um, so yeah, I was there for two weeks and then I moved to the village for the last two weeks for competition. And it was actually super nice to be <laughs> back in that village. I had no idea what it was going to be like because I, you know, I had the 16 games. So in my mind, it was going to feel the same, but I knew it wasn't going to be because COVID, you know, kind of uproots everything that we knew previously. Yeah. But um, it felt still very comfortable. I would just walk around and seeing all the other athletes. It was masks on everywhere you go, except for in your own room. And um, some countries limited where athletes could go inside the village. Um, but for the most part, is being in that secluded village with all the athletes and seeing all the flags and all the different countries and, you know, all the signs everywhere. Just once I got there, I was like, okay, this you know, we are good. I can finally, you know, stop worrying, you know, all the what ifs. Because I honestly think up until that point, I kept thinking, well, what if this doesn't happen? What if I test positive and I can't go over Japan at all, you know? Um, so finally getting to that village, I was like, okay, looking around, I'm here. I can take a deep breath and I can just yeah. focus on only competing. <laughs> what was the culture like in like in the village? Like how does it feel to like kind of interact with different Paralympians um, across different countries? I've always felt like there's a huge loving connection. Um, I think anytime you meet someone that shares the same love of sport as you, you just immediately connect, even if it's like track and jujitsu, nothing, you know, in common, but you still have a love for something that's so dear to you and that connects you. Then I've always found that the Paralympics specifically has a whole other level of that. Um, just, I mean, it was amplified with last year. We usually we have just, you know, the camaraderie of adaptation and disability, but this year, the whole added layer of, you know, being disabled in the pandemic, trying to adapt to competition and training in the pandemic, that was a whole yeah. other layer. So I just felt so much love and camaraderie with everyone. And that was something I was looking forward to so much because it's, that was really the biggest takeaway of when I was in Rio and I was just waiting for that. And I, I was craving it all the last year and uh, getting to that environment. I, I just love it. I love it so much. <laughs>
like how do you prepare yourself like for the day of competition and like tell us a little bit about that day for going up and, and, and you know representing your country and what that looked like yeah it was a little bit um uneasy this time around because you know when you get ready for a large competition you have to prepare yourself for a large stadium large crowds large energy and we didn't know how that would translate to this year because there weren't um, outside spectators there were still coaches and athletes allowed into stadium so we could go and watch our own events but you still knew there were going to be thousands of empty seats and um, honestly none of us really knew how to prepare exactly for that um, I am grateful I guess that as a disabled track athlete I have had empty competition stadiums before like that's something we've had so at least I knew how to compete with empty stadiums and with my NCAA season this last year, most of the stadiums were empty. Um, so that wasn't super odd, but it, it just hit a little different knowing that, you know, your loved ones weren't in the stadium right there with you. So I had to really kind of hone in and focus on drawing my energy from within as opposed to the crowd. Cause you just get a lot of energy from the crowd and from the environment, but not having that, it can be very easy to kind of drift in and out of that mental state at least for me. So uh, I did a lot of mental preparation beforehand of just, you know, no matter what environment I am in, just focusing on how I can manipulate that energy to myself and not from everyone else. Um, but it did help having uh, the live streams because the camera crew, they're always like around the competition. And this year they really increased the amount of streaming uh, throughout the whole Paralympics, which was absolutely phenomenal. And I knew that my family and friends back home were watching. And so I knew I could like look into the camera and think, okay, they're watching me right now. You know, they're not in the stadium, but they're all still watching me like in time. And um, I did, I was able to draw some energy in from that because that made me feel comfortable and very loved. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, on that point of like the, the new fans, I remember when the pandemic started, like with the, I was teaching a class at UNI and I had a student who was a, uh, on the wrestling team and wrestling is pretty big at UNI. And uh, anyways, I remember him coming into class and being like, it was like, everything was kind of changing really quickly. Like there was like three or four days. And I remember like the last day I taught a class, he came in and he was like, I don't know what's happening. We're going to compete next week with no fans. And then, and then I didn't see him again for six months and I don't think he competed again for six months. So, uh, how, yeah, how did that, like, how is that as an athlete? Like, I mean, obviously the Paralympics is like, and you said that you kind of like adjusted to it slowly, but like, how was that? Like, is that something that you did kind of get used to? And what did that feel like the first time you kind of did that to doing it? Like, yeah, somewhere at like the Paralympics. It's odd. I mean, it's odd every time and it's not like I haven't had, you know, empty stadiums before, like I mentioned, but you know, when you're at an event that's supposed to be the largest and most important moment of your life, you expect a certain energy. You know, you see movies of people going sure. like NFL games or the games and you you see that and you feel like you you feel as though you're in that moment in the movies. And that's exactly how it usually feels. And it's just really hard to put yourself in that awareness of this is the moment, this is the games when you don't have that sort of movie scene playing out in real time so I mean 
like I said, the mental preparation was very difficult with that. And I know every athlete had to figure that out separately because we all react to our environment, you know, on our own terms. But I mean, I was happy I had preparation for an empty stadiums, but it's just hard to really consciously say I am at the games right now when it's not the environment that you are expecting or that you've had before. So it was difficult. <laughs> it was really hard. <laughs> like works with you on that, like coaching you or even like on your, like, like, you know, privately or maybe with the Paralympics, is there somebody that kind of walked you through some of that stuff? Or is it just like you said, like you had some strategies and stuff like that? I'm just curious. Yeah. yeah. So the team coaches um, really try to help us prepare for that and as best they could and warn us to, you know, mentally, like when you picture yourself, don't picture the screaming fans because they will not be there. And we have um, a sports site coach with a team that I worked with all summer preparing for it, just working through, here's what I'm used to, here's what I need to expect and trying to navigate that. So that helped a ton. They had some pretty good resources for us. That's pretty interesting um, that you're working with a sports psychologist like that. And then probably very different, like probably unique for them too. It's like unique yeah. for everyone. <laughs> so, okay. So, um, yeah, like walk us through like, uh, you know, going up and, and, you know, performing and how you did and watching others in other countries. And- yeah, so typically my preparation, like right before competition, I typically at a games, we would do our practices at the competition warm up. So there's like the competition track and then completely adjacent is the warm up track. So typically we're on the warm up track about the week before. I only went there one day before because we were at separate or separate location for training. So the day we were there to prepare, we went in and looked at the stadium. We did a walk around and kind of felt out what the ring was like and looked at, okay, here's the direction I'll be looking. So mentally, you know, where's the sun and location to me? It was extremely hot. So if the day is not cloudy, where's the sun looking at? What do I need to prepare for? And so I could get a feel for the stadium and then the day of, thankfully, is actually cloudy and colder, in quotations, so like 80s or 90s, but much cooler than it had been. And um, I got there a few hours early and just put in some music and kind of let myself marinate in that environment. We set up camp right next to where people walk through to get to the call area. And so I could see other athletes walking by and I sort of drew in from that because there's something really special about seeing all those different uniforms that really puts you in that moment. So I kind of marinated and then, then went to the call tents. And I always love the feeling of the call tents because they bring you like under the stadium through these tunnels. And I remember in Rio, I could hear the music and the crowd from above the stadium, just kind of like vibrating in the structure. And I knew I can feel that the same way this time, but I kind of put that background noise in my head as I was just doing sort of doing like my warm ups and getting my shoes on. And I, like I said, I draw so much from the other athletes and it really made me feel very comfortable seeing the athletes that were there at the previous games or I've competed against before. Cause I was like, okay, yeah, I'm like, I'm back in this area with them. This is the games I'm here. You know, I am representing my country and they represent theirs. And that really drew me in to that mental place I needed to be. And it was very, I found myself like kind of slipping in and out of that 
just because yeah. you don't have the same energy. And especially when we walked out onto the track to do our warm up throws, you know, the stadium's mostly empty, but thankfully behind us was the area where the coaches and some of the other athletes were at. And that was very comforting to have them right next to where we were. Um, Cause I'm, you know, I found myself all the time just like looking back over there, not really for anyone in particular, because I knew my family wasn't there. And a few times I thought, oh, where are they sitting? Oh, wait, no, they're like back in Iowa, sitting in their yard on lawn chairs. <laughs> uh-huh. They're not here. But I um, I did bring a picture, a printout picture of my family that I brought onto the track with me because that's like the final piece of the puzzle that I needed to draw into. Uh, so I kept them there. And after every throw, I kind of went back and looked at them it's like, okay. They're there. I know they're watching on the camera, but you know that that was the last piece that I needed to just feel like, okay, I'm here. I'm at the games. I'm supported. I'm ready to go. <laughs> it sounds like quite mental gymnastics. And one of my next questions I want to ask you too is like, and it's obviously they're gonna be pretty vast, but like the difference is so you got to go to Rio and I remember talking to you and you're beaming about Rio. And um, you know, it sounds like Tokyo was also this, I mean, and it's so great always just to go to travel the you know different countries different continents but what were those experiences like so you're able to compare and contrast and you know it's just natural to do that and so what were some of the like the big key differences or similarities that you saw between those two different olympic events um that you got to participate in yeah i i think i actually went at two of the most divisive and unique games (laughs) People have always said, like when I went to Rio, everyone's like, oh, you know, this is going to be different games than normal. But next time, you know, you'll feel the, what the real normal games is like, because, you know, there's a whole thing with the Paralympics, just not having money beforehand. Um, yeah. And then Tokyo came around and everyone's like, oh, this is also not a normal games. <laughs> so I'm starting to think I'm just never going to experience a normal games. <laughs> but uh, the one thing that really stuck out to me going to Tokyo that's different was the environment of the hosts. Uh, I mean, honestly, through the pandemic, the one country I just really trusted to host the games was Japan. And they just blew me out of the waters. Um, I mean, their culture of being host is very prominent anyway. And I felt that through all the workers and the spectators and um everyone like through the streets. I love that environment, that culture. And that was really just cool to me, especially knowing how difficult it was for them as a country to host the games and to prepare for all that. So I tried my best to like everyone I interacted with to let them know how much we appreciated that. I know it was not easy for anyone, but I, I could feel their love and I wanted them to make sure that we loved and appreciated them back. Cause that was not easy for them to go through but yeah my favorite difference was just how amazing they were as hosts it was very it was a culture I hadn't experienced before and I just loved it I absolutely fell in love with it I wish I was able to spend more time with them but if I get the chance to go back I want to because it was just a beautiful I mean beautiful culture my wife lived there for like I think I think she stayed there for like eight weeks or something like that and she said that yeah it was pretty amazing so yeah, no, that's yeah. Aw- that's awesome and it, i mean it, it's got to be it, yes you did you uh participated in two of the most unique like you're probably up there with like people that participated in like 1896 <laughs> 1900 right like the first one <laughs> um yeah so that's pretty uh pretty it's very interesting um 
that you got to do that. It's crazy how COVID kind of changed everything. But at the end of the day, I mean, really, and it sounds like you're able to get in your head enough that it's pretty much the same thing. And, you know, as, and talking about that, how did you feel like about, you know, about your performance? How did you feel about, I believe you got fifth place, right? So how does that feel like? Is that? Yeah, I really had to talk to myself beforehand, kind of gauging where I thought I would end up. And I actually predicted I'd be fifth. Because my classification was combined 44-64. I'm 64. Mm. And um, so I knew going in roughly who would be there. Uh, there are a few athletes from different countries, particularly China and uh, my group, that they don't compete most of the other years. So we had no idea if they would be there until three days before when I saw them on the uh, lineup. So I had to mentally prepare myself. Okay, there will probably be people there who you haven't seen before or you have seen and had no idea would come back. So, um, I said, okay, it's very possible. I will not medal now probably get fifth. If the Chinese athletes are there, how will I feel about that? How will I feel if I'm, you know, whoa, you know, where do I expect to be comparative comparatively to the 64 athletes and 44 athletes. And, um, it was difficult knowing that a lot of people from back home didn't understand the whole classification is being combined. Yeah. A lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. It's different. And I, you know, I don't expect people to know right offhand that what the classifications are and why they are combined. So I, part of me was worried knowing, okay, people will probably expect me to medal, but they might not know why I don't, if my classes are combined and there are different athletes there. So I was really worried going into it, just the perception of other people. And then I talked to my sports psych and she reminded me and I had to remind myself plenty of times, like that does not matter, you know, outside you know, judgment of what you do and how you perform. That's not the important thing. So I had to really kind of get that out of my head, the whole fears of expectations from others and just hone in to myself. And that gave me a lot of relief, just preparing saying, okay, I am going into it expecting that I can get fifth and I will be happy with that. And my season, it started off really awful in the spring and it, um, got really well in July. I had, and maybe beginning of August, I had a few really amazing PRs. I was super, super happy about, um, but I had no idea what I would be doing in August. And I going into it, I remind myself like, it's okay to be disappointed in your performance, but given everything that's happened the past year, you know, be grateful you're here at all. That's a fine balance. You know, as an athlete, you want to sort of be that perfectionist that wants the best every single time, but you also have to be that realist to know that it won't happen the best every time. And you, you know, you can just be grateful for being there in the first place. And I honestly was, I didn't think I was going to make the team at the start of the year and walking the stadium. It's like, okay, I can be grateful to just even get a throw in. And I was very pleased to be able to finish top of the 64 class. And then fifth, it was very, I was really trying to choose to be very grateful for that. And um, I, the throw I had technically was an American record. It um, wasn't not a PR, which is kind of confusing because they didn't have my PRs registered as an official mark at that time. So what I threw in the games was a meter less than what I wanted to throw. But at the time it was an official record. So (laughs) I left to go to the media zone and I was sort of back and forth I was like oh I finished at a good happy place 
Um, but also the mark wasn't what I knew I could and what I had done the month previous. But also it's still a good mark and it's technically a record, but also I knew it could do better. And so it's really <laughs> bouncing back and forth. And I think every athlete does that. But um, I really chose to, I mean, go through at Mito's down. I was like, okay, I can either be disappointed right now or I can just be grateful. And I chose to be grateful because that's what I needed. And after <laughs> that whole year, I was happy to be there just in general. <laughs> And the cat in the categorization in Paralympics, which I I, I in my like um adapted physical activity class, I used to long time ago I used to teach it to my kids and I stopped because they like it was too much for them, you know, because it's confusing. Yeah. <laughs> and it, you know, you're 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 categorizing based on disability and a like level of impairment, right? And it's like there's I don't know, maybe like boxing has a similar like kind of <laughs> But aside from that, I think it's interesting that they've done that, but it's so unique, you know. So I can see how that would, could get in your head. And I also, yeah, I totally understand how you would have to also just like, what's the purpose of competing? Is it so that everyone oohs and ahs over you? Or is it is it to try your personal best, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that can really get metal, especially now with like the age of the internet where things can go viral yeah. and people can see or sort of respond to that. And with the increase in sort of the media attention to the Paralympics, which was amazing, uh, but it can be very easy for you to slip into the, oh, I'm doing this for the praise and for, you know, the admiration of that. And they have to remember at the end of the day, you're the one competing and that's not, you know, the cameras can be taken away at any moment. Do yeah. you still want to be there in that moment? So it's very hard to <laughs> kind of swing out of that once you realize you're in that rut, but uh, it's very important to do so. And thankfully, the uh, sports psych I work with was really good at reminding me of that. What psych you, you work with sounds like they're uh, quite a quite a good professional. So, <laughs> yes, I think everyone should <laughs> work yeah. with one. Honestly, it yeah, it changed uh, my perspective a lot more than I thought it would. But it's just so nice to have someone else going through your thoughts um, that you don't realize are damaging. <laughs> Were they, what is their name? And also like, did they just work with the track and field team or were they with other uh, um, teams as well? Yeah. Her name is Susan. She is with the, so she's contracted through the OPC or um, US OPC. And I don't know exactly what team she worked with, but she is specifically with the track paratrack team. I don't know who else she is with, but um, through the years, like each team kind of contracts with different nutritionists and specialists. And we brought her on last year and cool. that was a good change to have. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, you've brought her up several times, so uh, she must've done well. Um, okay. So let's transition. So uh, you get married afterwards and where did you get married at? In Cedar Rapids, my hometown. Nice. Where at? Just like a uh... It was at a biological conserve. I graduated in biology degree and my husband, like he loves nature and conservation. And we went there and it was like perfect math. We love it. So we had a beautiful outdoor wedding and it was gorgeous. <laughs> um, and then you said that you turned pro. Yes. So what's that day-to-day -day life and how's it going? Yeah, it's still a transition. <laughs> I am someone who very much loved the routine of school and I'm not quite used to coming home and not having schoolwork to do and not having homework. So that's very odd for me, but 
Um, basically my days consist of training and like working with, I've doing, um, some podcasts like this one, I've been doing some, uh, school, uh, I do like motivational speaking at schools or different events. And then also the biggest one too, with is sponsors, uh, so as you know, pair athletes, we don't necessarily get paid just to be an athlete. And so we have to find sponsors or have sponsors find us to pay for us to be an athlete and then train and compete through the years. So I'm still learning how it all works. It's <laughs> definitely a very new avenue for me. It's very tricky, but uh, something I was really excited about doing. And it's a blessing to even, you know, have the opportunity to do it. <laughs> so are you going to also be trying to compete in the 2024? Yes, that's my plan at the moment. I'm spending this year, like specifically just navigating how this works. And then yeah. the end of next uh, season comes and I think, I want to continue with this path. That's definitely something I'll set my eye on. Um, if I'm called somewhere else, I'm called somewhere else. But for now, this is um, the path I'm planning on uh, training for is 24. It's an exciting one. You know, and um, so we had a nice podcast over the summer uh, with somebody who does research on kind of like collegiate levels, disability sport, and, and people that are that have disabilities participating. We just talked about, you know, kind of like the lack of it. So kind of going back to your point too about like, how it's, it's hard to be a pro athlete, probably in a field like track and field, regardless, right? So, and then you put in the, you know, the, the Paralympian, uh, you know, disability part of it, and it's even more. So how does that, like, what, what type, can I ask, like, kind of what type of sponsors you're kind of looking for, as well as, like, I don't know, I guess, like, what, what similarities or different kind of barriers you might have to other uh, track and field athletes? Yeah, so, like, the biggest or barrier that we as the para side um, experienced with this is just the marketability of you know who do people naturally gear towards and we've talked about that before the marketability of disability and that's um something that's even more prominent now with media really covering the para games yeah. and so when i'm looking into accepting like sponsorship offers or reaching out to companies i really try to keep a forefront of people who and companies who really want to prioritize the Paralympics as, you know, a very important and elite competition. And uh, thankfully, the one of the greatest sponsors that has um, come out through this past year was the Toyota, because they were really, um, they really, like off the bat, were like, we want to promote the Paralympics specifically and really get that going. And they, um, they actually organized things for parents and family members who couldn't go to the games for them to go. So my parents were able to do stuff with them. And that was, I mean, that was absolutely huge improvements that we saw. And so going off that, my mind really tries to focus on companies who want to support me, not just as an athlete, but as a disabled athlete and as a Paralympic athlete, because that's something that I have really felt called to promote. Uh, and particularly this last year, I my eyes were open to other Paralympic athletes who struggled more because of their disability through training. And yeah, it just opened my eyes to realizing how important it is to find sponsors that really sort of mesh well with um, my, my goal of that, I guess. Yeah. Like, I think we talked about some of this last time, but like there's a term we talked about over the summer uh, in another podcast called inspiration porn. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that term? Yeah. Um, is that something that like you're like that you are like cognizant of 
And like when you talk to a sponsor or something, is that something that you're like thinking about? And then is it something that you're trying to avoid? Or is that something that I don't know? Is that something also like we talk about it a lot in academia, but like I wonder in some ways if like that's something that the athletes feel as well. Yeah, I know for me personally it is. I know for another a lot of other athletes too, that's something that's sort of always on their forefront. Because it's very difficult when I'm in this position where you can't really be all that choosy, but it, I really try to sort of stay within my morals of that because, you know, like I was saying with people, I don't want to partner with someone who just wants to, you know, put out an ad with, look at this disabled person. We are going to think it's amazing that they are up and even going grocery shopping. You know, if I partner with them, I want them to say, look at this Paralympic athlete they go to the Paralympics, here's what they can do with their disability. And here's how they can become an elite athlete with their disability. And I want them to encompass all of that and not just here's a disabled athlete that we can put on with, you know, sad music on an ad, you know? So it's very difficult to um, figure out sometimes who is actually in it for the promotion of the Paralympics and who's in it just because here's someone with a very visible disability that still functions semi-normally. We're comfortable with putting them in a picture. Let's go for it. So it's difficult to navigate and hard to really tell, especially if you are looking at larger companies, who's really for that and who's just doing it for the media and for, you know, writing off as, yes, we support the Paralympics without actually supporting it. But I try really hard to make sure that I stay within my moral bounds of that because it is very important. you talked about it over the summer too, like a little bit about how it's hard to navigate and like what is and is not that inspiration porn. And so everyone knows like inspiration porn is kind of this idea that, yeah, we, we highlight disability to make people feel like better about themselves or all oh, that poor thing kind of thing. Like what is and what is not, you know, you've accomplished some great things and like highlighting that I don't think it's like inspiration porn, right? It's, but like, it's, it's when it's kind of like, yeah, it's to the sad music and it's like those like old things where they put the music and the sad puppy eyes, right? <laughs> penny to the poor thing. But um, yeah, I think it, but it's, it is vague, you know, it's, it's a little, and I think some people could see inspiration porn as one thing and another person sees it as another, um, which makes it even more difficult, probably someone in your position to kind of navigate. Well, Jesse, I really appreciate your time. And I'm going to ask one last question and we wrap up. And I'll tell you a little bit about off the air. I'll tell you a little bit about my life uh, and things going on too. But um, what are your hopes and, and, and goals in the next few years aside from rejoining your Paralympian uh, uh, team? What are some of the other things that you want to see with this, this new role of yours? Yeah, so I have been working on uh, a few committees with the USOPC and the NCAA to promote Paralympic athletes in uh, college. And like I mentioned, we had a huge growth between Rio and Tokyo of athletes who were able to compete collegiately with disabilities. uh, So I'm super passionate about that now. And I've um, been really blessed to be able to work in a position where I can help that, you know, on the committee. So that's something that I've really been setting my eyes on. And I'm really trying to focus on for the next generation of athletes is getting those opportunities open, you know, opening those doors for people so they can do like what I did is compete collegiately and have that amazing opportunity. Incredible. Uh, I'm going to, we'll wrap up and I I might talk to you and maybe some ideas for you to like, like 
connecting with some other people and stuff like that. But thank you, Jesse, so much. Yeah.